Untitled Beatles podcast. TJ, do you feel complete? No, Tony. And that's why as part of this nutritious breakfast, I have Lucky Charms. Lucky Charms. <laughs> Put a marshmallow in your face. <laughs> I have Jolt Cola cereal when I wake up. Remember that era of Jolt Cola cereal? With <laughs> jolt mushrooms, they call them Jolt Shrooms? <laughs> jolt Shrooms. They mellow you out. Kinda. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Probably not. God, dear doctor. <laughs> Don't have too many. It is true because uh, I feel like my kid is missing out. Like when I was five, I had a lot of McDonald's, my man. We did like McDonald's. My parents would be like, hey, let's have a special dinner tonight. We'll bring home McDonald's. Oh, yeah. And that's how that stuff was advertised. You know, grab a bucket of chicken, feed the whole family, that kind of a thing. Kentucky Fried Chicken, that is. Get a bucket of used to get our buckets of chicken from McDonald's. But Chicago McDonald's are very different. They had buckets of chicken. Popcorn. The Burger Kings did. I swear to God. The Burger King on North Avenue and Wells, or North and LaSalle, had a popcorn. It's like, after five, come to Burger King and get your popcorn. Like, all right. Whopper takes a long time to make right. You get to have it your way. How do you rank the burgers, Tony? What go like traditional, not like the in and outs, but like oh, the, okay. The I was going to say, I just had a butter burger from Kroll's West in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. That's a good burger. Um, but the fast food, yeah, I, I go Wendy's, Burger King, um, and then I guess McDonald's. Those are the big three. So yeah, we're leaving out things like In and Out and Culver's, I guess, huh? Yeah, because those are all, like Culver's to me is the best you can get in the Midwest. Culver's. Like, uh, Carrie, my wife doesn't, um, love fast food, but her take is always Culver's at least tries. Yeah. And she's right. Culver's tries. Yeah. And they have like different flavored shakes each day or whatever it is. Yeah. I'll dig that. Uh, locally I like Billy Goat burgers a lot, even though the bun is jumbo. I, there's something I just love about the Billy Goat burger. And, um, what do you call it? The, that 24 hour diner grill on Irving Park Road does a great burger. There was a fire a couple years ago. They reopened. They don't live around there anymore. They're back. Okay, they're back. Great burger. I just went there. uh, Yeah, after the wrap party for work in progress, I went and got myself a burger. It's great. My favorite burger growing up was there was a greasy spoon. Sorry, spoons. I don't mean to implicate all spoons as greasy. I'm great now. I'm getting canceled by this big spoon. Big spoon. Big bad spoon. I like Spoon, by the way. I've got some uh, hot thoughts around my mind. There is a uh, burger place that's long gone that was in the corner of Wells and North, a tiny bit south of North Avenue on Wells, right by Second City, called Mr. G's. Do you remember Mr. G's? Yeah, That was my high school lunch place. They had a burger called the Dagwood that was, I mean, the best burger in the city. Without question. Also underrated burger from a Chicago classic restaurant that's been gone for 15 years, but is coming back. Ed DeBevix. Did you ever go to Ed DeBevix? Yeah. Our, our friend Mark Sutton worked there <laughs> Mark a Sutton long time ago. There. I didn't know him then. <laughs> he probably yelled at us once. Like, the waiters, 
That was their stick. It was the fifties, and you were, they didn't like you. You know what, Grandpa? If I was nice to you, I'd get canned. Okay. If you want good service, you go somewhere else. I know Hooters is probably more your speed. You came food, here on purpose. Okay. You used food. that line already, and it wasn't funny before. What, well, you what are you drinking? A little more specific, genius. Yeah, that was the deal. You went there to get insulted or whatever. I used to point it out when I did those trolley tours. We would go by there, you know, and Planet Hollywood. I had to point that one out, too. More like Planet <laughs> Holly weird. <laughs> Thanks, Elvis. Then the planet turns Hollywood with all the stars you could ever imagine. Yes! Join host Arnold, Bruce, to me and Sly when Planet Hollywood comes home. Saturday, all the stars come together on A Beatles C. Well, the reason I asked you if you felt complete today, TJ, here on the Untitled Beatles podcast. Because we're now brought to you by multivitamins.com. Take a vitamin. <laughs> the science doesn't prove they work, but buy it and find out. <laughs> yeah. I get my pills from the infomercial where the pills are on fire because my, t my metabolism slowed and it's not my fault. <laughs> I have to take fire pills now. <laughs> it's genetic hereditary. Yeah. It's, not it's... my fault. I didn't start the fire, but these pills will. <laughs> we, we, we like referencing that song. Um, Centrum something one a day. Marilyn Monroe. She didn't take a vitamin, which is why she died young. Also, that's why James Dean died. North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe. Well, we came to talk at you about the definitive Beatles documentary, prior to the Beatles anthology, a little something called The Complete Beatles. Oh, so you're not talking about the 1991 VHS tape Fun with the Fab 4? <laughs> Remember, like, <laughs> Suncoast would have, like, unauthorized Beatle documentaries featuring yeah. publicly available footage for $6.99 on VHS. Well, that's still happening, man. Does, so does this ever happen to you when you, so you're like, oh man, I'm in the mood for the Beatles, but oh, I don't want to, I don't want to put the DVD in the DVD player for anthology. I'm too lazy. Let's see what Amazon, you know, and you, you do an Amazon search and it's like how the Beatles changed the world and the Beatles, a long and winding road, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the Beatles, the long and fabulous road. <laughs> Paul McCartney really is dead. The last testament of George Harrison. You're like, oh, fuck you at this point. Like, fuck off. Well, I, I remember my confusion when I really want to watch a documentary on noted uh, Mexican artist. Uh, and I rented good old Frida thinking it was Frida oh, yeah. Kahlo. That's the mistake I made. <laughs> That one's not bad, actually. That one, out it's of all one. those, yeah, it's okay. I, I don't need to see it more than once, though. You know, I'm not going to crave good old Frida again. You know, God bless you, or whomever, Satan good bless you. <laughs> Nobody else has said anything yet about our fan club secretaries and Collingham and Betty, you know, Rose. <laughs> not to mention Frida Kelly in Liverpool. Good old Frida! We should do some episodes about people like that, peripheral Beatle people like Mal and Magic Alex, and we should definitely do a George Martin episode at some point, but... um. <laughs> I'm new to the world. He did Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh. He's a big Beatle fan. Yeah. <laughs> George, he's the pirate. George R. Martin. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's like you were saying with these Suncoast VHS now Amazon Beetle knockoff footage and it's always in like shot in 4-3 and it's all these like unauthorized talking heads with bad sound shot on a video camera and using this like Beatles sound alike bands that sound nothing like the Beatles and you're always like okay I'm now completely wasting my time (laughs) but first of all I want to say how much we all loved Paul the real Paul McCartney now am I dead That's why we watch the complete Beatles, because you get notable non-talking head uh, Jerry Mardson singing Living Doll. (laughs) It's true. It's true. It's true. Complete Beatles has talking heads. Hey, look, it's it's Alan Williams, the 417th (laughs) Beatle. (laughs) You're right. You're right. You're right. But it's I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll get into it, I suppose. We'll get into it as we go through the movie. But this was the documentary. It was uh, released in October of 1982. Initially, it was released as a PBS documentary in the U.S. And then later in 84, it actually got a theatrical release because there was this hunger, right, for Beatles stuff, in the, especially in the early 80s. When by this point, we're almost 12 years in to talk of the Beatles producing their own, quote unquote, long and winding road documentary that, of course, wouldn't materialize until 14 or 13 years after this via the anthology. I mean, there was a ton of time between when this came out and when Beatles anthology was released. Uh, as a second, are we second generation Beatle fans born in 70? You're 75, yeah. I'm 74. Yeah, I would consider us second generation. Yeah, so as a second gen Beatle fan, born four years after the breakup, when this came out on VHS, I want to say that was 84 as well, right around the concurrent with the um, theatrical release. I believe I so. My parents bought this videotape. It was a fancy one. It didn't just slide out of the case. It had like a lid that you'd open. and oh, then the, the plastic, right? Yeah. And the tape was in, like, you knew it was important. The MGM United Artists logo looked important. Yeah. You know, United Artists, of course, produced A Hard Day's Night. The soundtrack yeah. was on the United Artists label until Capitol got it in the early 80s. I think it might have been 1980 or 79, right around there. So, yeah, it was an important VHS that more than anything except the musical Beatlemania, which is how I heard all those songs in one setting as an impressionable kid. This movie shaped what I know about the Beatles history. I love this movie. This mo- You and I were talking a little bit before we went uh, started recording, Tony. This movie is like an old friend. This movie is one of the movies, even more than anthology, which I love the commitment of the anthology and all the different episodes, but this succinct two-hour film is like a comfortable blanket from your childhood. I, I know almost every word. I, I learned about the Beatles from it, all the music in here. In retrospect, it pales in comparison to what anthology is and what these other kind of documentaries have been. But it is essential viewing for at least a generation of Beatle fans. And Tony, last thing I'll say, while it was on Laserdisc and VHS, <laughs> since I think two years before Anthology came out, this has not been commercially available. I think yeah. since 94, you could not buy a new copy of this seminal, instructive, enlightening Beatles documentary. It's crazy. Yeah, it's as if it's been wiped off the face of the earth. And yeah. uh, maybe we'll we'll wrap with an angle on that. But uh, yeah, let's talk about the film itself. It, uh, it was put out by Delilah Films uh, on VHS, at least. 
produced by Stephanie Bennett and Patrick Montgomery, who was also the director. And it was written by a cat named David Silver, who I, I think he did a great job. I really liked the narration of this whole thing, which was narrated by Malcolm McDowell. And uh, I thought uh, it was particularly good for a literal cat. <laughs> or a phenomenal cat for all you kinks heads out there. Or for you Angela Weber heads. <laughs> like being touched by an actor dressed like an animal come see cat why did that do so well and you know musical theater guy no patience for cats i do like the deli i don't like the musical <laughs> well i'll tie this in malcolm mcdowell who narrated this was in the movie cat people as well so there, there's that one too i'll tie it in too. my favorite randy newman song <laughs> don't Malcolm McDowell, uh, perhaps most famous for Clockwork Orange. He was also in Tank Girl, The Artist, and Call of Duty Black Ops 3. Probably his most famous work. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to visit his star on Hollywood Boulevard, it is right by the Pig & Whistle British Pub. So there you go. Yeah. And Pig & Whistle brings us to Meat Free Monday. Meat Free Monday. It's a fun day. So now you'll notice that it's not spelled complete Beatles. Normally they spell complete like the Beatles spelled Beatles. It's C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T, which is also titled in the spirit of the complete angler, which was England's definitive book on fishing from the year 1653. And what do they always say? You can't have an angler without your dangler. <laughs> angler? I barely even knew her. <laughs> well... Ringo is from the Dangler. From the Dangle. <laughs> Ringo grew up poor in the Dangle with his dongle. <laughs> we talk way too much about Beatle Privates. My favorite Tina Turner song, I'm your Beatle Privates. <laughs> I'm your private Beatle. I Beatle like Privates are watching you. <laughs> Baby. <laughs> You goofed on the talking heads in this movie, but let's face it. We got George Martin in there. We got Billy Preston in there. Yeah. Marianne Faithful. And uh, like like Lenny Kay, Petty Smith's guitarist, who also created the whole The Nuggets compilations. If you dig your garage rock, Lenny Kay's the guy that did all those those Nuggets things. And didn't Chrissy Hine develop Chicken McNuggets at McDonald's back there? <laughs> like, wasn't that her, like, back on the chain gang was about working at a McDonald's? If Chicken McNuggets played music, what would it be? Chunk rock. It's a great film. I got hooked on this movie, too. I kept renting it over and over from the local, uh, the O-Video there in the suburbs. And uh, at one point, my dad worked as a school teacher, and on one summer, he got to bring back a, a VCR that was used by the AV club or whatever. And so we had a VCR for the summer, and uh, an extra VCR, I should say. So then I'm like, all right. And I ripped, you know, I dubbed Complete Beatles. I dubbed Imagine John Lennon and... Uh, 
whatever else I could get my hands on. The kids are all right by the who, things like that. Um, so then I have it. I still have it on video cassette in that form, you know, but I don't have a VCR anymore. Thankfully, you digitized your copy, huh? Yeah, I digitized right around the time Carrie and I were trying to have a kid. This would be 2013. I actually digitized. <laughs> Does digitizing turn you on? Is it a foreplay Dude, thing? The only way I can get it up is when I have a dual video cassette deck. <laughs> and in one end, I got a scotch six hour. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I do. No, I wrap my RCA cables around. Anyway, we should. <laughs> All right. So much more than just a story. The best in So yeah, this came out in late 82 initially, and just think about where the Beatles were at the time. Ringo is kind of a joke at this point. I don't mean to be totally disrespectful, but Ringo had come off, what, his album the previous year, Stop and Smell the Roses, barely sold any copies. John Lennon's gone. George yeah. is about to go into retirement. He did no promotion for Gone Trapo. Right. And only Paul is really commercially viable. At this point. And 82 is such a weird time for the Beatles because, of course, Lennon killed almost two years earlier in December of 1980. You've got McCartney 2 coming out in 80. Tug of War in 82. Gone Trapo, nobody notices. This movie is pre-Say, Say, Say. It's pre-Broad yeah. Street. It almost, it's pre-Milk and Honey, the posthumous yeah. um, Lennon release, right, which was right. so crucial. I mean, nobody told me was a hit, a well-deserved hit. So for an unfinished song, oh God, what kills me about Milk and Honey, Tony, is as good as Double Fantasy was, you could see that John was only getting better. It just, yeah, he was it, just it, getting it, started. Just like starting over. He was just like starting over again. And to think that one of those songs is called Living on Borrowed Time, I, I'm and yeah. grow old with me, getting chilled uh, even yeah. thinking about it. But when this movie came out, almost feels connected to the previous era of Beatledom, even though it was a couple years after John was killed, it feels connected to the John being alive era. So this movie, when I first watched the VHS, and I kept this in the digital copy that I made, and I made the digital copy, by the way, when Carrie got pregnant, um, I had nine months to take all my VHS tapes, Beatles stuff, WKRP episodes, oh, Bulls wow. and Cubs games, all the stuff I'd videotape forever because I was an only child like you. My yeah. One of my hobbies was taping everything. The Letterman's in Chicago, um, yeah. Christmas episodes of sitcoms. I digitized them all when Carrie was pregnant because I didn't, I wanted to keep them, but I wanted to get rid of the tapes and not have all the, the, the nonsense. So yeah. I digitized this. I, I uploaded it for you to watch and I love that it begins that MGM UA logo with the fanfare is part of the experience. It's so exciting to see that. It's like settling in and for two hours of Beatles history. It's so good. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then it begins with this calm, soothing narration. I, I really like Malcolm McDowell's voice. Liverpool, 200 miles to the northwest of London. Nothing much ever came from Liverpool but soccer teams and British comedians. The city droned on wearily in post-war Britain, a nation nostalgic for its triumphant past, threadbare and tired in its present. And then the seagulls, you know, from the Liverpool docks, 
It sounds like it's about to be like a really good school film strip about the Beatles, you know, which it kind of is at this point. Because even like I love how all the talking heads, they're shot on film. They have that film quality to them. I think you can actually see like hairs on some of the films, some during some of the George Martin stuff. Um, Yeah. And it's shot in 4.3. So it's not 16.9. It's not a film release. It's shot, you know, like a TV show. The first words out of the gate, Tony, are Liverpool, threadbare and tired in its present. It starts with like this, like you're gripped by it, by the first, the sounds and look of desolate Liverpool plus a narration bring you in if you're a Beatles fan, because this is their beginning. Yeah. And it is so funny. I was thinking about that word today, Liverpool. And it's like, can you come up with a more unappetizing <laughs> slash disgusting name for a place. We just take it for granted. I'm like, Oh yeah, Liverpool. But it's like, well, you know, it's like, what, what were the other options? Intestinal basin, you know, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know what else. Bile depression, you know, like Liverpool it just sounds so awful, but you know, these guys made it this other thing. Now it's this celebrated place. And Ringo saying about it. I was a sailor first. I sailed the sea. Then I met my friend. He was named Rory. That Liverpool ate song. Like, oh, Ringo. Ringo's literal, very literal Ringo lyrics. You're, Ringo, you're a bad boy. But you, 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 you. But it's, it's, yeah, I think it's great. Um, there's a lot of things, you know, it opens up with this great uh, montage of the Beatles to the, their version of rock and roll music. What do you think about that, Tony? I, that's I love the it. first question I wanted to ask you because I've read online there's some consternation that the first Beatles song used is a Chuck Berry cover, not an original. I thought I'd play a lot of rock and roll music Any old time you use it It's got a black beat, you can't lose it Any old time you use it I think it fits perfectly capturing Beatlemania, the excitement of it. I think it's a great use. Do you think there's anything weird about not opening with a Lennon and McCartney tune? No, I don't because they didn't start playing Lennon and McCartney tunes. They Hell started yeah, playing rock and roll, right? That's how it started. So it never rankled me ever watching it. It made sense to me. Is it my favorite Beatles song or whatever? No, but it definitely fits. I'm with you. What's cool about Complete Beatles is that there's a lot of stuff that is in anthology, but there's a lot of stuff that's also not in anthology. And uh, there's a lot of images I've since forgotten since I've, you know, don't have a VCR anymore and haven't been able to really watch it as much as I used to. I forgot, like, there's an image of John Lennon live playing in like a Spanish hat, you know, for a split second. And it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That's cool. Where the hell was that? When was that? Was that when they played Spain? Like they played two shows in Spain or something. That's when he and, married Brian Epstein <laughs> and wrote how I won the war. <laughs> One thing that's interesting about this is there's a lot because they couldn't get certain rights like Ed Sullivan and all that. There's a lot of intros to live performances that then aren't live. I'm pretty sure they have the Hollywood Bowl intro into the studio track of rock and roll music, which at the time I didn't care about, but that's one flaw in retrospect to the film. And it's not their fault. They couldn't get the rights. It's a rights thing. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of stuff was just too expensive or they just said no. Tony, I'm not going to list every song used in this, but 
I counted 64 songs. Wow, man. That are either Beatles songs or period songs. The first third of the movie, in some respects, is my favorite. It's where I learned so much about Beatle history, so much about their influences. You know, you get the familiar images. Ringo smoking the cigarette when the piano lid closes on him. It's some of those classic images that, to your point, that kind of began here for a lot of Beatle fans. Oh, yeah. There's great stuff. Yeah, you get to hear, you get to actually see people like Lonnie Donegan. He's the one that does Jack of Diamonds, the skiffle thing, and his it's cracky so voice. It's great. Jack of Diamonds. <laughs> Jack of Diamonds. When you play the game of life, you've got trouble, you've got strife. Jack of Diamonds is a hard Skiffle was a form of hillbilly blues originally played on washboards, kazoos, and a one string bass. Lonnie Donegan popularized it with hits like Rock Island Line, Cumberland Gap, and Jack of Diamonds. Jack of yeah, and then Jerry Marsden plays Jambalaya. And, but yeah, they play a lot of their influences. Bill Haley, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Everly Brothers, Eddie Cochran, of course, Elvis, the oft-mentioned Elvis. Tony, this is the first place I ever heard Bill Haley's doing See You Later, Alligator. Even yeah. watching this again, I'm like, oh, what? because all you think about is the one Bill Haley song everybody knows, Rock Around the Clock, thanks to season one of Happy Days, which didn't have a <laughs> laugh track. Happy Days is like the first single cam sitcom that first year. was like a, Happy Days was a much different show that for, I did not I see remember in that. real time, but in reruns, there's always, because the later episodes is like screaming ABC laugh tracks. The yeah. first episode is way... Or seasons way mellow. Yeah, and kind of strange and mysterious. And it too also has like a school film strip quality to it. <laughs> <laughs> very dark. Everything's yeah. very dark in that. Um, there's a Malcolm McDowell uh, line toward the top of the film, Tony. I've got to give you that every time I've seen since 80, whatever, 84, 85 has given me chills. The Beatles, poets and heroes of an era, they were determined and they were lucky. Most of all, they were good. Very, very good. Is about as succinct of a description of the Beatles. I've, I mean, Mark Lewison, when it's all said and done, is going to have a 6,000 page, three book Beatles story. But that's the essence of the Beatles story. They were determined, they were lucky, and most of all, they were good. Very, very good is the Beatles' thesis. And it just, I get chills even thinking about it. That's David Silver. Yeah, he did a great job. Yeah. Like with this upcoming Peter Jackson thing, they've had to make it six hours because they can't do two. And that's just on the let it be bit. (laughs) So there's something to be said for being able to cover all this in a compelling way and yet be concise. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, sometimes you don't have six hours or with Anthology 10, whatever, (laughs) you know, Anthology is. So, yeah, this is a good way to just sit down for two hours and get the whole story. Other favorite things, there's some great picks of the Quarrymen that yeah. weren't in Anthology. There's a lot of things, too, like Alan Williams. You mentioned him, but he's their first manager in Hamburg. A lot of these people are gone, man. Yeah. George Martin, Billy Preston, Alan Williams, uh, the Cavern Club DJ, Bob Wooler, Jerry from Jerry and the Pacemakers, Tony Sheridan, uh, Nicholas Schaffner, who wrote the, the Beatles Forever book that came out in 77 and is still regarded highly. That book was essential. Essential. Yeah. Yeah, he's since passed away, too. So there's a lot of these talking heads that can't talk anymore. Horst Foscher. You get to hear from him from the Hamburg. What a badass. <laughs> Horst Foscher reminds me of what's-his-face from Rocky IV, Drago. Hey! 
<laughs> Ivan Draco. The Beatles, if they find a hooker and she, the pimp wants to kick their ass, they come to me. I'm like, all right, dude. Maybe you don't know that they are prostitutes and you get involved with them and the pimps find it out that you can, you can have a lot of trouble. Talk to Horse about it, he takes care about you. And then it came that I was more or less there. Yeah, like bodyguard, more or less. Yeah, yeah. There's a rumor he killed a sailor in a street fight, we learn. And it wasn't a, a sailor. It was uh, the, the guy from the village people. <laughs> <laughs> they want you. They want you. They want you as a new recruit. Before we move on from Jerry Mardson, two of my favorite moments. I've been using the phrase "acky dacky since I was 11 years old and nobody's understood it. But he's talking about some of the music that came out was "acky dacky." We gotta go hold the payroll down the bio. Which is also the Aki Daki. And here to do Jambalaya, which I've heard Joel Sonnier cover, the great, unfortunately, far right wing uh, Cajun artist, Joel Sonnier. Weird. Um, yeah, it it's, it's, uh, makes me sad. But he, great song, Tear Stained Letter from the 80s. That's uh, a pretty great uh, kind of Cajun tune. But hearing Jerry Mardson do, and then I want to walking, talking, sleeping, stalking, living doll. It's one of my favorite moments. You don't get that shit in anthology. Ron Howard, second Happy Days reference, does not deliver that in eight days a week. The type of music that was coming out of the charts was this. Got myself a crying, talking, sleeping, walking, living doll. I got to do my best to please her, just cause she's a living doll. I don't know that I need to hear, you know, I I love Whoopi. I don't need her for 18 minutes telling me how much she loved Beatles 65. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And it's cool that Sigourney Weaver was at a Beatles show, right? Yeah. But yeah, but, we don't need that. <laughs> come on. <laughs> Save it for your blog. I'm, I'm waiting for Fonzie to come and tell Richie that not, shit's not cool. Hey! Smacks the jukebox and deletes the Sigourney Weaver scene. Because I'm the Fonz, huh? Hey! <laughs> And then Billy J. Kramer's in there, too, talking about them with hair longer than I'd ever seen in me life. And these guys with hair longer than what I'd ever seen in me life. And I think sort of jeans and leather jackets just anyway, smoking cigarettes, you know, just up there doing it and having a ball. Billy J. Kramer, who had just before the interview smoked a thousand packs of cigarettes. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And John Lennon moved into Billy J. Kramer's bandmates building in New York. Oh, really? Yeah, the Dakota. Uh, I'm like, what? The, the Dakotas moved to New York? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you're a dad. You're, you're allowed. You're allowed. I'm allowed dad jokes. <laughs> well, the birds in the sky will be sad and lonely if they knew that I lost my... Is that, is that, that's Billy J. Kramer, right? Yeah, pretty sure. Maybe sad because yeah. you're bad to me. Uh, that major seven there. Oh, I love it. John Lennon. Yeah. The ones they gave away. Yeah. Um, 
These are cool little Beatle nerd ass things, but like seeing an early version of the Beatles logo on a drum head, which does not, it's not that font. It's like all lowercase. It looked very different. Yeah. It looked small. It was, it's kind of fun. Of course, you get to hear some other guy from the cavern. This is where yeah. we first see the cavern footage. This is like what made me fall in love with that song. the first big moment in there and the last thing I wanted to say about the kind of history you get at the beginning I learned so much the back in the US rock was facing hard times Elvis in the army Chuck Berry in prison for violating the man act yeah hi <laughs> Chuck Berry I love you but oi um then of course they show you know the news reports to the big bopper and buddy holly and richie valens dying in the plane crash i get chills every time jerry lewis marries a 14 year old that's also his cousin and then they it's sh- jerry lee lewis by the way Jer- <laughs> no <laughs> lady Dude, yeah. my favorite scene in the king of comedy is when jerry lewis goes to a bat mitzvah and goes home with more more than a yarmulke <laughs> Favorite BG song, by the way, is more than a yamaka. 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 And then they show how sanitized kind of pop began, you know, yes. especially by 82. Yeah. Frankie Avalon and all those teen idols did not, you know, now they've kind of held up differently Fabian artistically. Yeah, Fabian and all that nonsense. But certainly when this film came out, they were regarded as being a joke. That era of early 60s kind of bye-bye birdie pap was looked at as a joke. There's a great song by the Animals called The Story of Bo Diddley, where Eric Burden kind of talks about how how rock and roll died after Elvis went to the army. The rock and roll scene died after two years of solid rock. You got discs like... uh... Take good care of my baby. Please don't ever make her blue. And then comes alive again with the Beatles. About uh, one year later, in a place called Liverpool in England, the four young guys with mop haircuts begin to sing stuff like. uh, They actually start singing things like Hard Day's Night. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. Way down in the deep south. For the Stones, he starts singing, uh, I want to be your man. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man, yeah. And all that jail. But he also makes fun of that era of music by singing, Take Good Care of My Baby. Um, it's a great song. Check it out if you can. That's Bobby V saying that song, I think. Right? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Uh-huh. I think so. I, I'm not, you know what? I'm not, uh, I'm not up to speed on that. It is, you know why? Cause it's not rock and roll. <laughs> I like the follow up. I like the Bobby V song called the night has a thousand eyes. They play on magic one Oh four once in a while, but, uh, <laughs> the Beatles cover, take care of my baby in the Decca audition. George sang lead. I'm pretty sure. Take good care of my baby. Don't you ever make her cry. Yeah, they did. They did. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it kind of puts the whole scope of rock and roll, you know, in the in the the wider lens of it all and the Beatles place in it as they're moving up. Going from this band no one's ever heard of, who's not very good, then they go to Hamburg and they kind of, you know, develop their chops. They meet Tony Sheridan, they record My Bonnie, and that becomes this kind of local hit in Liverpool and it gets the attention of Brian Epstein at his record store NEMS. Yeah, and it shows concurrently everything else happening in the music scene. And they show Cliff Richard, who was huge for like 50 years, but never in the U.S. It's interesting, a couple other notes from the earliest parts of the movie, Tony. Alan Williams, who you mentioned, the first manager, um, talks about the Canard Yanks bringing all the records back to Liverpool, which are the Beatles learned, and all the British groups learned a lot of the records and B-sides. When they show some of the Star Club and the Beatles in Germany, they do my favorite version of Mr. Moonlight. Mr. Moonlight. Here I am on my nose begging, if you please, which John just kind of fucking around, which I love. They show the another big Liverpool group in Germany, Derry and the Seniors, with Howie Casey. Howie Casey later played saxophone with Wings. He played on Band of the Run. Crazy. He was part of the horn section for Wings Over America. I didn't know that, man. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, right? Alan Williams calls Pete Best not very good. And so they introduced me to Pete, and I said... Okay, play me a drum roll. Let's see how good you are. And he played, not too cleverly, but passable. Two Hamburg things for you. The instrumental music when they're showing Hamburg sounds like background music rejected from Greece. To Englishmen of Alan Williams' generation, Hamburg was notorious for its legendary cabaret district, the Reeperbahn, which featured bizarre sex displays, open prostitution, and women wrestling in mud. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, some of that stuff. <laughs> like, some of that stuff is kind of goony. I agree. Yeah. And it's interesting. Tony Sheridan is not German, but after all the years being big in Germany, he sounds German in this. I don't understand. Tony Sheridan sounds German. I don't believe he's German. Before we came, there was sort of a watered-down German version of rock and roll, which was, say, for example... Teddy Bear, the Presley song, done by a German artist who would wiggle his legs as much as possible and sing a very silly German lyric. You know, they show Bill Harry, the Mersey Beat editor. That's another great talking head. And there's a moment where I, I listen to Billy Drake Kramer speak and I wonder, is that B. Arthur? At the time, everybody was into uniformity, wearing uh, the same clothes. It's Miami in June. Only cats are wearing fur. <laughs> Well, it's interesting that then then they get back to the cavern and it's it's cool that the uh, that Bob Wooler, the cavern DJ, mentions like when they play Hippie Hippie Shake, the place goes bananas. I dug out of my old records a record by Chen Romero called Hippie Hippie Shake and I played it. It's a long time since I played that record at a jive hall and Paul had heard this record. He said, what's who's that? Uh, I, I understood why he liked. 
liked it because it suited his vocal range, you see, and his pitching in a strident manner, falsetto style. So he said, lend me that record. And sure enough, they uh, learned the record. There's all these great details. It's it's cool. There's a lot of stuff that you get from Complete Beatles that is not in anthologies, but especially regarding these early years. One of the best parts of the film, it's all great, but the first third of this is essential. In, and the Beatles anthology, those parts one and two leading up to the uh, British Beatlemania, um, that's another Billy Joel lyric. Lawrence of Arabia, British there's so much content here. You know, we don't get to Ringo joining the band, Tony, till 33 minutes in the film. It's a two-hour movie. Yeah. So the first 33 minutes don't have any Ringo. And then when they talk about Please Please Me being released in the UK and in England and what a big hit it was, we all know this is true, but for so many original songs on one album and the quality of those songs, you forget what an accomplishment it was. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It, it really puts in the perspective of the mania. And I think that's due in large part to the whole story that we've just seen here of the history of rock and roll and where it was going with the whole Fabian thing and how it got tamed. And then that taming that happened in those two or three years was like, whatever, a, a Coca-Cola bottle <laughs> being shaken up, you know, just waiting for the with Beatles. With a Mento put in it. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you do... Don't drink a Coke with Pop Rocks. Your stomach will explode. <laughs> it happened to Mikey from the Life commercials. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Before the internet, that's what people said on the playground. Things like that. When Mikey went on to become the Noid for Domino's Pizza. <laughs> They brought that back. The Noid is back. Oh, and I'm, really? I, I, I'm anti. I'm anti-Domino's anyway. Domino's <laughs> tastes great if you want to be 13 in 1987. <laughs> right. Yeah, if you want to be sleeping over at your friend's house, <laughs> right. get a Domino's. Yeah. So you're more of a Papa John's guy. Yeah, I like Papa John's. I like Jimmy John's. I like Porta John's. Three of my favorite restaurants. <laughs> Yeah, they're all about the same quality, I think. They all taste like <laughs> shit. No, 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 no. Over half a million times tonight, we'll be delivering in 30 minutes or less. No, no, Sometimes no, we even arrive no, no, a little early. So tonight, no, call us, because nobody delivers better than Domino's Pizza. So 33 minutes, we're into Ringo. We're 40 minutes in, and we're not even in America yet, Tony. Like... The detail given to the Beatles' early career is one of the things that makes this so essential. 40 minutes in, they haven't even gone to the States yet. I say that as a compliment. They do a great job telling the story in such a compelling way. They really do. And then when they do blow up, there's some really fun moments that didn't make it into anthology, like Ringo's uh, hairdressing salon. There's that great shot of him walking by all the ladies with their hairs in the dryers. I've always fancied them there. A lady's hairdressing salon, you know, a string of them, in fact. And trot around with me stripes and me tails, you know, like a cup of tea, madam. Of course, you get the rattle your jewelry from the command performance. That's good. The people in the cheaper seats, clap your hands. And the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewelry. 
you get some moments of uh, the U.S. press conference and the the Sullivan intro. But then you get studio all my loving with images of girls screaming. Yes. No, yes. no Beatles performing. Yeah. And some of those girls going crazy are so fun. I think during From Me to You, there's that platinum blonde girl who's just losing it. She's just going cuckoo, man. I got lips to kiss you. There's a cool profile shot of Ringo playing drums. Uh, I think it's during the DC show. I started watching this when I started learning how to play drums. And it showed me how Ringo swung when he hit a hi-hat. Like how his sticks went like left to right instead of like Marky Ramon, you know, vertically. He went more horizontally. And I was that opened my head up to like, oh, you can play like that. And uh, I soon learned how to play that way. And it, you can just get around the kit easier that way. It's fun. It's great. I just saw a bit with great drummer Greg Bissonette, who's played with Ringo a bunch, talking about the influence Ringo had. And he talks about Ringo's swing on the hi-hat as being one of his great influences, too. Makes, yeah. Yeah, it's totally cool, man. There's some cool Jimmy Nickel footage, actually. Don't get to see too much of that, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, when they did their that world tour. One of my favorite moments in the movie is that girl from Brooklyn. Ah! <laughs> That's the next thing I was going to say. It's me. Paul's the sprout of a new generation. And the name of it is A Sprout of a New Generation. It shows Paul McCartney coming up from the earth. I sprout, a sprout, a start, a new dawn. You see, the Beatles are the original. They started the look. Everything. Archie! <laughs> like Edith. Yeah, she does sound like Edith. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. I also thought, oh, is this Marianne from Brooklyn from the Howard Stern show? <laughs> that woman <laughs> who calls in. <laughs> Great. You've I, always had this unusual voice? I think I had my tonsils and adenoids taken out. It's my parents' fault. Yeah, they took out your tonsils and adenoids, and they probably didn't even need to. Right, and they screwed up my, my beautiful voice. You had a beautiful voice. I used to sing like Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but yeah, she has this big painting, uh, Paul McCartney, like, sprouting out of the soil. And it's it's classic, and it didn't make it into anthology. And it's it, awesome. Some of my favorite footage in the whole thing, Tony. Yeah, yeah. By the time they get into Beatles for sale and the first four British albums go very, very quickly. This, by the way, is how I learned the British albums were different than the American albums. I know, right? I mean, other than George Martin talking about how Capital rejected um, Please Please Me and I Think She Loves You, which is really revelatory. It's it's incredible that all these years later, the Capital turned those songs down. You know, Please Please Me might be my favorite Beatles song. The energy of that song to me is unmatched. Yeah. To think that Capital turned it down or called it too British or whatever it was at the time. What an embarrassment for that label, only worsened by a cover where they had bloody babies, and then the following album took all the John songs off. So this <laughs> yeah. Capitol certainly did have its other embarrassment. The quote is, you guys don't know how to make American records. The first time we had uh, Please Please Me became a hit, we sent it over to Capitol Records, which EMI owned, and said, can you please release this record? And they said, sorry, it wouldn't mean anything in this country. And we were a bit disappointed, but well, they should really know their own market. We, we are only English. We don't really know. And then when the second record came out, we said, will you try this one? You know, this, this is a good one. 
you know, you guys really don't know how to make American records. I'm afraid it's not very good. Which is just insane, especially given what would happen just about a year later. But when you talk about Beatles for Sale, Malcolm McDowell, his narration is they call the songs morose. I'm a loser. The weary faces on the cover of the next British LP, Beatles for Sale, showed that Beatlemania was taking its toll. The music inside was also more serious. There was the pessimism of Babies in Black and the Dylan-influenced I'm a Loser. In all, the eight original songs were somewhat morose, especially when set in juxtaposition to the glad spirits of a hard day's night. I love this album, whether it's on Beatles 65 or Beatles for Sale. Yes, it's more tamped down than A Hard Day's Night, to be sure. Yes, they go back to covers, but I love Beatles for Sale, and it's weird to hear in 82 it being talked about as being almost a lesser-than album. Certainly isn't that to me in 2021. Interesting, yeah. I mean, I get why he's saying it, because it's like, I'm a loser, baby's in black, things get a little more grim, I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. Hard Day's Night is more like mania, cheerful, and Beatles for Sale feels more weary and maybe knocked out by the, you know, it's the day after the party or whatever. But somehow brilliant. It's it's making some of your best work the day after the party. Oh, that, yeah. Those three songs that start Beatles for Sale, uh, No Reply, I'm a Loser, Babies in Black, might be three of the greatest songs to start. The, the same running order st- starts Beatles 65, the same track list. Yeah. So those three songs are some of the best trio of openers in any Beatles album ever made, in my humble opinion. Yeah. Yeah, and then... the. They do help, and uh, they get their MBEs. We see some rubber soul. We see the music changing. There's a cool clip of uh, yesterday being played at the Budokan later in 66 that they tie into this. The quality of Budokan is terrible compared to some of the bootlegs and the remasters from Anthology. That's one thing that feels, the print feels very, very poor quality. Yeah, what was their source material on that? Yeah, it might have been second generation. Who knows where they got their Budokan footage? But this is where they they show the, if I needed someone, as an example of how they uh, weren't good musicians anymore, at least live musicians, their work suffered during this period. We'd like to carry on with the song which is of our last LP. The LP is called Brother Soul. And the song, which is sung by guitarist George, is called If I Needed Someone. Rubber Soul was a clear indication that the Beatles were outgrowing their image as lovable mop tops. Their experiments in the studio had created music that was difficult to reproduce on stage. This, combined with the strain of touring, was making it hard to maintain the energy of their earlier concerts. And then that goes right into the 66 tour, which adds such an element of... Uh, almost horror to the Beatles story because he, they throw in this low droning note underneath the tour of the Philippines, which turns into the Birmingham DJs. Their tour of the Far East in June of 1966 was a firm indication that Beatlemania was going sour. The 
there were riots in the Philippines when the group unintentionally snubbed the country's first lady. The backlash spread to the US when John's remarks about the decline of religion were misquoted by an American teen magazine. This is Doug Layton and Tommy Charles We're reminding you that our fantastic Beatle boycott is still in effect. Don't you forget what the Beatles have said. And don't forget to take your Beatle records and your Beatle paraphernalia to any one of our 14 pickup points in Birmingham, Alabama, and turn them in this week if possible. Oh, those fucks. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Burn your Beatle. We got it all. We're going to burn it. And they show those gross looking what i am racist when it comes to racist white people i want to be very clear i am racist against racist white people and watching those people in birmingham stepping on the records and burn yeah. who's burning the, the beatles had or some someone in the beatles community i don't know if it was any of the the actual four said let them burn the records they're just going to rebuy them eventually there's uh, and they did i mean that didn't the notion of like i'm burning this colin kaepernick jersey i spent 285 dollars for god bless you yeah. Congratulations. Maybe eBay it to prove a point. <laughs> you know, like recoup your investment, genius. I never understood that stuff. Also, the the Minneapolis police, I had forgotten. I don't think they get into that in anthology either about how harsh the Minneapolis police were. As far as Beatle music, I could care about it not one bit myself personally. Some of the members of the troop, Phil, became very indignant. They told us that Minneapolis was a very narrow-minded town, as were its police officials, and that other cities had been very tolerant to the parties that they had held in their rooms. One of their uh, group with a British accent uh, told me that they would never come back to Minneapolis, and I remarked to him that if they did not come, it would be too soon for me. Yeah, that tour sounded like a nightmare, and I, I'll never blame that band for stopping touring especially in that way when they're being driven around in those armored bank trucks or whatever with no windows and yeah. <laughs> forget it man there's no way to be <laughs> obviously things have changed since then stars get the star treatment but geez man part of the history of that tour will always be when john lennon tried to almost apologize for the bigger than jesus the maureen cleave thing maureen cleave the ninth beetle <laughs> um that was the ambassador hotel in chicago that, yeah. That's a big Chicago tie in that's that right. took place here before they played Comiskey. I don't call it you a guaranteed rate field, the GERF. <laughs> the GERF. The world according to GERF. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, then that, of course, leads to Revolver. There's that cool moment when they start talking about drugs and they play Tomorrow Never Knows as an example of that. And they do some kooky camera work all over the revolver cover itself. Two of John's songs, She Said, She Said and Tomorrow Never Knows, were the results of his recent experiments with drugs. Tony, continuity error. We just talked about all the British albums. They show the Capitol revolver cover when they're doing that crazy <laughs> camera work. Instead of the Parlophone logo, it's got the Capitol logo. And it's good it's eye, like, TJ. Good eye. So, <laughs> well, you're Captain Labels over here. 
<laughs> All right. Well, there you go. Note to the editors. You effed up. We caught it. <laughs> IMDb goofs. <laughs> the version you showed didn't have Andy Bird can sing on it, okay? <laughs> yeah, man. Um, yeah, and of course we get into Sergeant Pepper. And this is the era when Sergeant Pepper was beginning to become just worshipped as the masterpiece of all time. And it is, it is. But uh, I think, you know, years later now, people are talking more about Revolver or perhaps even the White Album as being their grand opus or whatever you want to call it, their masterwork. I was going to ask, because in 1982, to your point, Sgt. Pepper was regarded as the biggest Beatles album ever. And by 82, they're already gearing up for the 20 years ago today, 1987 celebration. Is Sgt. Pepper still regarded as the greatest Beatles album of all time? I think it's certainly up for debate. It's the most famous. It might be the most important. But I'm not taking Sgt. Pepper over U.S. Rubber Soul. Or I'm not taking it over Abbey Road. I'm not taking it over the British Revolver. Right. I left out Abbey Road in my masterpiece list there. Well, let's get more obscure. How many people <laughs> know the album's contents or its cover? <laughs> yeah, I think it's up for debate. But in 82, I think it was widely regarded as the best. And like, if you thought some other album was better than Pepper, you were like argued at. I mean, maybe Tug of War. I do love Tug of War. I don't mean that. I just put that on last night. Yeah, it's good. It's a great album. It's good. Uh, Then we get into the Maharishi and all that. And uh, Marianne Faithful, I thought, had a cool talking head point where she was talking about the Maharishi bringing in a philosophy to live as individuals. And that's right when Brian Epstein died. What the Maharishi told us was something to do with individuality, something whereby you could live without other people. The strangest thing about that was that at the moment they were being given um, a philosophy in which they could live their lives as individuals, at that very second, Brian died. The one who'd wanted them to be as a group. Then we get into Magical Mystery Tour, and there's that the narration which is great, and the David Silver writing. I wonder if this is what maybe irked Paul and maybe one of the reasons why we can no longer widely view the Complete Beatles, but he states that... uh, The idea was to travel the English countryside in a bus filled with friends, actors, and circus freaks and to film whatever happened. Unfortunately, nothing did. Nothing did. (laughs) And since that was such a baby of Paul's, I wonder if that comment really irritated him. I don't know. Well, and maybe also Paul was bothered by the fact that Nicholas uh, Schaffner, is it Schaffner or Schaffner? You know, I don't know. Beatles forever. I don't know how to say it. He's wearing a dark horse t-shirt in 1982. <laughs> like, was he celebrating the release of Gone Tropo? Did he, was he protesting the Warner Brothers forced changes of somewhere in England? I wonder Nicholas Schaffner being like, how, how do you cut flying hour? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, that, man that, that was probably the clean shirt. That was the clean Beatles shirt he had that day. <laughs> the, uh, the, the tug of war shirt wasn't available yet. Right, he, he didn't have one of portrait records to celebrate bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've always liked the India footage that they showed. Some of that is not in anthology. Another fun aside is when they leave early was that uh, besides, besides Ringo, Ringo didn't, didn't like, like the food. 
<laughs> right? Because he had the suitcases with beans. They talk about this in anthology. They talk about the that. Suitcases. The beans yeah. as anthology. Yeah. 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 We find out what food he preferred, I suppose, in anthology. There's another great, one of the best editing jobs is um, Glass Onion fades out entirely when Yoko comes into the picture. George was becoming increasingly unhappy with his usual allotment of two cuts per record. And the new presence in the studio at John's invitation was adding to the tension. Yoko Ono was an avant-garde artist whom John had known for two years. Recently, she had become not only his lover, but his constant companion and artistic collaborator. Yeah. It's a great editing moment. It's worth noting at this point, too, we haven't seen anything about Cynthia or Patty or Jane Asher. No, they kind of keep it, they keep it professional versus personal Yeah. until Yoko. But that's also because Yoko kind of entered the professional world, I suppose. I like that when they talk about Ringo quitting the group during the White Album for a few days, the picture they use of him is him with a parrot on his shoulder. Right, right. <laughs> like he, he walked- Ringo or Kojak? <laughs> Like he left the group to maybe try something new. Like maybe I'll do this parrot ventriloquism act (laughs) over the Blackpool lights or whatever. (laughs) Rico became a hairdresser for parrots. Also known as a Jimmy Buffett fan. (laughs) I like mine with lettuce and tomato, Hans 57 and French fried potatoes, big kosher pickle. And the only time a country rock song said big kosher pickle pickle in it. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Man. I forgot about that one. Yeah. And when they do zoom into Yoko, they're using, of course, like Revolution 9, you know, mm-hmm, which is cool. Yeah. It makes sense. That was, she was a, a part of that. And then they show the two virgins cover. They do. Yeah, they do. Good for them. Good for them. Yeah. Then it moves on to get back. We actually, we finally get to hear from Billy Preston. And then he, and he plays a little bit. He plays Get Back on the Piano. Everybody you know, was pitching in with ideas and, and trying different things. And, um, and they just let me play whatever I wanted to play. And uh, that made it nice. My solo on Get Back was, you know, it was my creation. <laughs> I want to hear the whole thing. I know, right? That moment, like, I, I hope when they do issue this, they issue it with bonus footage. It's got to come out on DVD at some point. Like, Criterion or someone's got to get a hold of this thing and actually do it right because it's so important. Well, this is also an era we talked in the last episode, depending when this airs, about uh, the Beatles Get Back airing on Disney+. Plus. You can't stream Beatles Anthology anywhere. You want to watch Beatles Anthology? You got to pull your DVDs out if you haven't digitally transferred them yet. So you got to think Beatles Anthology will stream on Disney Plus at some point soon, and then maybe Complete Beatles get some kind of home video or streaming issue. But Billy Preston, that's one of my favorite moments. He's still, he's so important and so important for so many reasons to the Beatles and their sound on their last two albums that uh, seeing him in this, it's the closest you get with George Martin to seeing one of the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, they go through the whole history. They touch on Let It Be, and they touch on Abbey Road. You know, one side was for John, one side was for Paul. John marries Yoko, Paul marries Linda. Apple collapses, Alan Klein gets in there. 
And then, quote, Paul quits the Beatles. And there's a real rough photo of the Beatles from that era. Yeah. That is, it almost looks like they took it through a Xeroxer or something. It looks really, it looks rough. <laughs> well, and uh, the Malcolm McDowell, not Roddy McDowell, who auditioned and was roundly turned down. <laughs> not McDougal's, the fast food joint from coming to America. <laughs> Best burger, though. I forgot to include that on my favorite burgers was McDougal's. Get a McDougal's double slapper. They're the best. (laughs) So funny. There's always some asshole who tries to argue that Hardee's and Carl's Jr. are different. They're the same, same. jump. Same thing. It's regional. What starts July 25th? Smurf days at Hardee's. Happy Smurf Day! There's a uh, a Malcolm McDowell narration here that has made my eyes water since 1984, and it's the, the Beatles, Beatles the, the greatest, greatest pop group of all time, time, were no more. Were no more. And George vanishes the photo. Yeah. All during while well, I'm so tired is playing. Ringo vanishes, then John, then Paul. And then, for some reason, when they show the Let It Be cover, it's on the budget EMI Music for Pleasure label. They don't even show the original Let It Be cover. I'm like, why are you showing the budget release? Make any, make any sense. Uh, I mean, it's towards the end of the film. They probably ran out of budget. They, <laughs> they, they had to go to Rose Records. Rose Records. Chicago's original music stores. Sheep on drugs. It's the Sheep on Drugs greatest hits. Sale price at $10.99 CD. Featuring Motorbike, Track X, and her latest release, 15 Minutes of Fame. Dream on. It's the Sheep on Drugs greatest hits. Sale price at Rose Records for only $10.99 CD. And catch Sheep on Drugs live on stage at the China Club, September 24th. Rose Records. Chicago's original music stores. Well, what's curious, too, is that the way the the film ends, it ends like the way American Graffiti ends with those epilogues of each one. Yeah. Paul went on to form Wings with his wife, Linda, and recorded many best-selling albums. George continued to combine his musical and spiritual interests while consistently maintaining his privacy until this is obviously before someone broke in. Ringo made several solo recordings and pursued an acting career in Hollywood. Jug, jug. (laughs) Jug, jug, indeed. The dawn of civilization. Primitive. Dangerous. Exciting. Wet. And sloppy. Caveman. And then, of course, you know, we got to do it. But yeah, John collaborated with Yoko on music, humanitarian causes, and raising a family. He was assassinated on December 8th, 1980. And then Blackbird Place, which is the last song you hear, Tony. Yeah. Just gets me. I did want to mention um, toward the end of the movie, what's the full video of Paul playing Let It Be from the film. Um, the yeah. same version used in the Let It Be movie and in the Peter, J- I don't know spoilers, turn, press pause or skip if you don't want to hear spoilers. But in the Peter Jackson movie, Yoko gives Paul a back rub as he's playing Let It Be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then they all go out for burgers at uh, <laughs> at the British McDonald's. Uh, yeah, so how do you watch this thing? It's not on YouTube. There's a weird version that somebody redid on Vimeo where they replaced a lot of the 
footage with other, other pictures. It doesn't quite work for me. I mean, thank you for doing it. All the sound is there, the narration and all that. They've also added some extra stuff from Budokan and stuff. But yeah, you can only really find it on VHS or Laserdisc online. Either it's on eBay. I think I saw today at this writing, a few copies were available on VHS. It's running like 40 bucks or something if you want one. You also have to have a VHS player. But um, yeah, why is this not widely available? And it was when Paul was preparing Anthology, he bought the negative and all the rights to this film from Delilah to get it off the market. So Paul has this. And according to Patrick Montgomery, this is why it is not available on DVD or any other format and probably never will be. I think it is one of the Beatles travesties because the Beatles, while they didn't produce it, clearly gave their blessing and authorization for all the music used in this. I mean, this this is not an Apple product, but clearly it had the Beatles authorization to use the music. So what's so tricky is in one respect, anthology obliterated the need for this, but it shouldn't have obliterated the history of this. I understand if you want to make it streaming or whatever, but there's, if you were to clean up all the footage, I'm not talking about like switching out. I don't even need to see the Ed Sullivan, all my loving and some remix of this. If you just cleaned it up, cleaned up the sound, resource some of the footage and just, and made it picture for picture cleaned up for what it was. You don't think there's hundreds of thousands of Beatles fans like us who'd buy a, a Blu-ray or, or a DVD of this? I would. I'd download it. I mean, I'd certainly watch if it's streamed. Yeah. This Tony and the Beatles cartoons are mm. massive mm -hmm. gaps. And Let It Be is about to be remedied, If it's certainly if they reissue the Michael Lindsay Hogg version. Yeah, hopefully. But... The Beatles cartoons and the complete Beatles are two of the most shameful omissions in available and easy to access Beatle history. They're both very important for shaping a generation of Beatle fans, if not more. I couldn't agree more. And I, I have one fix on this. Malcolm McDowell, still alive. Bring him in. Have him record the word everything. Right. And then during that part of Magical Mystery Tour where they claims that nothing happened, just put in everything, you know? <laughs> the idea was to travel the English countryside in a bus filled with friends, actors, and circus freaks, and to film whatever happened. Fortunately, everything did. He can also rewrite the Paul epilogue. Paul went on to form Wings with his wife, Linda, and recorded many best-selling albums, including Press to Play, which was regarded as the greatest album ever made. Happy now, Paul? Stranglehold. Hashtag however absurd. <laughs> well, if you got some extra cash lying around, you can find it on, on VHS, on eBay, or dust off that old Laserdisc player. And uh, it's a great two hours. It's a great way to get the complete Beatles story. Uh, the complete Beatles. <laughs> the only way to watch this movie is on Betamax, you dick. You know nothing. <laughs> Tell us more about Star Wars. Oh, that was a different episode. Untitled Beatles podcast. Like and subscribe. It's still one of the wonders of life. Of course, we all love Magical Mystery Tour. And I know my kids love to see this really beautifully written script and um, of course great photography 
everything you would expect the Beatles would do and I, I, I think the Beatles pulled it off <laughs>